Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Once viewed as America's forgotten war, Afghanistan has been under the spotlight in recent weeks as President Joe Biden announced the US withdrawal from the country and the Taliban swept to power. Since then, many people have been trying to understand what exactly the Taliban want, whether they have modernized and changed since they were in power in the 1990s, and how much civilian support do they have on the ground in Afghanistan. So in this week's episode, we're delighted to be joined by Ashley Jackson. She's the author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan, and she had a fascinating conversation with Rosamond Irwin. We hope you enjoy it, and if you do, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Rosamond Irwin. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Ashley Jackson. She's co-director of the Centre for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute, where she's studied Afghanistan for over a decade. And she's also the author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. Welcome today. Thank you. Now, you began researching this book in 2017 during a period when you say in the book that you felt as though the outside world had forgotten about the war in Afghanistan. That clearly has changed. Did you expect four years later this to be roughly where we are? No, I don't think anyone could have foreseen this. But certainly when I went back to Afghanistan in 2017 to start looking at this Taliban shadow state, it slowly sort of became apparent that what they had set up and and they had taken huge swathes of the countryside. But what they had set up was, you know, they were preparing for this moment. And in retrospect, it's easy to to see that. But at the time, you know, as, it, as you said, the world was focused on Syria, on Yemen, on other conflicts, on domestic politics, of course. And there were a few foreign correspondents, very little international media attention to what was going on in Afghanistan. A lot of the international forces had drawn down. There was still a NATO mission, but it just didn't make headline news. And so what the Taliban had done during that period, while the world was focused on other things, was really take on the Afghan security forces, gain a lot of ground, and lay the groundwork for what we're seeing come to fruition now. As I started writing the book, you know, in 2018, the U.S. started uh, peace talks with the Taliban. We started to see the Taliban emerge from the shadows and uh, make a little bit more news. There was a, a a hopeful kind of energy about some sort of peace deal, but obviously over the past few months, we've seen that fall apart. And I think even the Taliban is surprised at how quickly they've taken, well, now the entire country, basically. 
Uh, the big question everybody is asking is, has the Taliban changed since they were last in power? As they obviously claim they have changed. Yeah, I really struggle with this question because it's it's a very sort of black and white question. And you have pundits and commentators saying, oh, Taliban 2.0 or no, they're, you know, these... They're the same as the 90s. Well, neither is actually true. It's been 20 years. Afghanistan has dramatically changed. The world has dramatically changed. The Taliban has changed in a lot of ways. I think when you say that, though, people say assume that you're saying that they've gotten more progressive or they welcome women's rights or something like that. No, their their framework and the way they see the world remains quite similar. You know, they favor really conservative, very conservative version of Islam, which manifests in this, you know, in these very kind of um, clear distinctions between genders, really repressive policies for women, but also for for men in many, in many ways, in terms of their dress, in terms of uh, sexuality, in terms of a lot of things, and really putting Islam or their very specific version of Islam, I should say, first and foremost, but they've also gotten savvier. They're much better at communicating to the outside world what they want. We saw right after they took Kabul, they had this really extraordinary press conference where the Taliban spokesman emerged. He he was someone who you could contact by phone and nobody really knew who he was. And it was this big buildup to see who this the spokesman actually was. And he sat there. The first question he took was from a Western journalist, Charlotte Bellis from Al Jazeera. And he, he was very conciliatory. He was talking about women's rights according to Islam, whatever that means. But he was talking about, you know, really wanting to be part of the rest of the world and wanting a Taliban government to, to, to be you know, more forward leaning and all of that. So they're good at presenting a different vision. They're also just different. You know, they've embraced social media where they used to smash television sets and all those kinds of things. And they've used it for their own, their own names. So they've moved on in the same way the rest of the world has moved on, but that doesn't imply that they'll be any more liberal or any more embracing of human rights or democracy. I mean, I think that's clearly not going to be their agenda. So it's, it's more nuanced than have they changed or haven't they? It's how have they changed? And what does the rest of the world do with that? I mean, how do you engage with that? Is there more room to influence them or deal with them on certain issues? And I think we're just at the beginning of finding out what that the answer to that is. The primary sort of the central argument of your book is to do with the relationship between insurgencies and civilians. And civilians are often treated, as you say, as quite passive in all this. How has the relationship in those 20 years between the insurgents and the civilian population changed? Um, I realise that's an enormous question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it's an enormous question, but it's a familiar trajectory, right? Like when insurgencies start, they're pretty disorganised. They target anyone and anything that they can to make a point, to announce their existence, to, I don't know, just to do anything. They start how they start. And then they start to evolve and build structures and build strategies. And we've seen that with the Taliban. And, and basically the way that they evolved was, you know, they were incredibly disorganized up until roughly 2007, 2008. And that's when, when the rest of the world kind of thought Afghanistan was reconstructing. It was at peace. There were these Taliban forces kind of emerging, but nobody took them seriously. But then the Taliban gets organized and they realize 
effectively that they have to have a relationship with Afghan communities, with civilians. The only way that they're going to survive is by bargaining with them. You know, they exist in the shadows. They exist by embedding themselves within communities, recruiting from the countryside, recruiting from these areas where people have been left out of this new political deal. They've been marginalized by this 2001 government and they track on those social cleavages, but they have to give civilians something and they have to kind of reconsider their 1990s kinds of positions on things. In the 1990s, or I should say on the eve of 2001, Taliban was incredibly unpopular. There were rumors of an imminent coup. The country was in the midst of a crippling famine. They're incompetent. They're fighting amongst themselves. So the Taliban also reflects on what they did wrong in the 1990s. And part of what they believed that they did wrong was they were too cruel, essentially, uh, and people turned against them. So they want to prevent that happening again. They continue to be cruel. They continue to use violence to further their aims, but they start to bargain. They start to give people services to allow government schools, to allow aid projects when they have to, when communities say, listen, we can't support you unless you do this. And so that's kind of how how it evolves. And, and the Taliban uses that support. And there's a sort of give and take between civilians and different Taliban fighters and the insurgency as a whole throughout the way the Taliban evolves. And we kind of see that playing out now as well. I want to talk about the challenges of writing this book. You spoke to over 400 members of the Taliban and civilians between 2017 and 2019, mostly. How difficult was it to interview Taliban fighters and civilians? And also, you know, were those people themselves taking quite substantial risks in talking to you? Yes, absolutely. Everyone, myself included, was was taking a risk. But, you know, at that point, you had a lot of Afghan journalists out there reporting on these things in the Afghan media. And I really, when I got back to Afghanistan, you know, I was monitoring the Afghan press. I was trying to meet the journalists who were who were writing about this, trying to convince them to work with me, to give me advice, to, to tell me how to do it. And I was very lucky to find a few collaborators and partners who helped me figure out how to how to do this safely. And I mean safely in terms of, you know, not only myself, but how to talk to people without putting them at further risk. The really interesting thing though at this point in time, the Taliban has moved through lots of rural countryside. They feel more and more dominant, less and less afraid. They don't mind talking to someone like me. Uh, in fact, a lot of them wanted to tell their side of the story. They wanted to show off like, look, we, we run the government school. We have a health clinic. We're not afraid to shake hands with a woman like you or, you know, look at what we're doing. And I think that sort of desire for legitimacy and to for someone to tell the story of what was happening worked in my favor. I definitely took advantage of it. But certainly Afghan civilians, too, wanted to tell their story. However painful it was, I think people also wanted, especially an American, to come and listen to what had gone so badly wrong. You know, how absolutely exhausted they were, how they were being squeezed by both sides, both the government and the Taliban, And to have someone acknowledge that for whatever that was worth, I mean, it doesn't change the situation, but I found that people were surprisingly open to sitting with me and taking time 
and walking me through what their actual reality was. You open with a story of a village elder who did manage to negotiate with the Taliban. How did people manage to negotiate and get what they wanted from insurgents? Well, it depends who you are. And a lot of these, you know, well, let me back up. Actually, it's really useful to think of sort of two Afghanistans. You know, there's the Afghanistan that we hear about in the media, the sort of cities and the liberal elite who have really benefited from the past 20 years of, of intervention. They've gone to school, they've gotten jobs, they've been more exposed to the rest of the world, they've benefited economically. And then there's the other Afghanistan, and that's mainly in the countryside in the south and the east, but also, you know, in the north and in places where there was aid programs and investment, but where security deteriorated. And you found yourself, if you were on that side of the line, having to deal with the Taliban. They were either coming into your community from outside, or you found that people you went to school with, or your neighbors, or whoever, you know, someone was a Talib, someone was associated with the insurgency. So you, you, everybody knew someone who was Taliban. And that's how it really started when people had to negotiate. So if someone's relative was taken by the Taliban, put in prison or detained, you would start by asking the closest, you know, for lack of a better term, friendliest Talib you knew. It could be someone you went to high school with. It could be, you know, a sister's brother's cousin, whoever. Uh, you networked, like we all network, um, to try and find a way to solve a problem, whether it's getting that relative out of jail, whether it's avoiding paying Taliban taxes, whatever it is. In the beginning of the book, I tell a story of this village elder, you know, a sort of community, a community, an elder statesman within the community. We all have those, right? Who has to reopen a school. Everybody's complaining to him. We have no schools and they shut down schools. And could you just fix this? Amongst the, you know, the 20 other problems they're complaining to him about, he thinks he can do something about the school. So he, he liaises with the government to try and get them to send teachers back to the area, to get them to repair the school, to get them to give funds to the school. And he liaises with the Taliban to try and get their permission not to threaten children, threaten the teacher, to, to endorse the school effectively. And he has to work both sides against the middle to just, you know, give people access to education. And that story in itself was not at all extraordinary. People were doing this day in, day out, just so that they could live their lives. And that's how they survive, how they survive the war, really. And of course, companies as well. So you mentioned telecoms companies and trucking firms. They were also having to deal with the Taliban. What were those relationships like? Ooh, those relationships were much more legally complicated, as you can imagine. And nobody wanted to talk about this, right? I mean, when you're a big multinational or you're an Afghan company, and of course, after 2001, you know, Afghanistan has had a burgeoning private sector. But if you were in media, if you were in logistics, I mean, you had to negotiate with the Taliban, right? So uh, MTN, the South African telecoms company, actually got into trouble with um, a lawsuit, which I think is still ongoing in the U.S., for paying off the Taliban. But everyone was doing it. Everyone is still doing it. And it's not necessarily paying off the Taliban, although there's bribery, of course. But the Taliban developed this sort of state-like um, taxation scheme. So you'd be paying a standard 10% or you would be paying a tariff on things you imported across the border. It would be pretty predictable. 
and almost regulatory as much as an insurgency can be regulatory. So it was just the cost of doing business. And I think a lot of these firms, they were faster. I mean, they've been doing it for bordering on a decade in some areas and no one talked about it. No one wanted to talk about it because of the legal consequences, but you really had no choice. Clearly, when we're talking about civilians, the insurgents are more powerful than them. But then, of course, as you say, in civil wars, people are the prize. So how skewed is the power dynamic between a Taliban insurgent and a civilian who may have some influence in their own community? How skewed is, is the power relationship there? Well, it's incredibly skewed. The The insurgents have the power of, of violence. They They can do anything with impunity, right? But the issue for any insurgency, and especially the Taliban, is that they rely on the civilian population for shelter. They rely on civilians not to inform on them. When international forces were there, civilians could get back their own by, you know, tipping them off and calling in an airstrike or whatever it was. And so I can't say that that kept the Taliban in check, uh, but it certainly was a consideration of theirs. You know, you don't want to be so cruel or so unrelenting with the civilian population that you drive them over to the other side. And I think that was a calculation the Taliban was always making. You know, how much can we squeeze them? How much can we push them? How much do we have to give them? And some civilians were better at sort of leveraging, leveraging their, their power, their influence, however meager it was against the Taliban. And I, I include a lot of individual stories because I think that's the only way you can understand how extraordinary, I mean, it seems crazy that you would stand up to and threaten the Taliban so that you could reopen a school or you could do whatever, but people did that. And I think they did that because they felt they had no choice. Life would be unbearable if they didn't take a shot with the Taliban. And to some extent, at least for some people, that allowed them a little bit of safety, a little bit of breathing room and and, and force the Taliban to back off certain positions or do certain things for them. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You say that we hear very little from civilian voices, and obviously this book does um, sort of redress that issue. 
Do you think part of the problem when we often read about this in the media that we just don't hear those voices at all? Yeah, and I think we don't hear the complexity of those voices, right? There's this idea of good guys and bad guys in a war. There's the Taliban, there's the international forces. We all know whose side we're on. When you're caught up in the conflict, when the the war is in your village, it doesn't look black and white at all. It's many shades of gray. And you're exhausted. You have no good choices. And you're just kind of thinking of your family. You're thinking about what will help you secure survival. (laughs) And, you know, you're hedging bets. You don't think about the long term. And this really manifested when I would ask people how they felt about the Taliban or how they felt about the government. A lot of people would say, would give kind of non-answers. And I very quickly realized that that was the wrong question to ask. In fact, I had a sort of memorable interview where my fixer sort of broke it down for me. He's like, you can't ask these questions. I don't know where you're coming from with this, but you clearly don't understand the nature of the conflict or Afghanistan at all. And he was right. Because ultimately, it's not about who you like, because you don't like any of them. You want to be left alone, and you want to be able to live your life. And you're thinking about what can enable you to do that. And I think when we talk about civilian voices, we hear we hear of civilians being somehow rescued or protected or as victims. It's super one-dimensional. Or siding with insurgents, supporting the Taliban. Most people don't support the Taliban, just like they don't support the government. I mean, they're both miserable options. So I think even when we do hear civilian voices, they're cut out to fit into our very simplistic narratives of how these wars work. And that's that's deceptive. And it doesn't give people the agency to tell their own stories because their own stories are much more fascinating, quite frankly, uh, but certainly much less one-dimensional. We have a lovely interview where the man says that he doesn't have, sort of have the luxury to pick who to support. It's sort of he must dance with whoever is there. And I thought that really summed up the relationship. Yeah, I mean, this is a very strange <laughs> interview. It was with a, an English teacher. He's like English literature, Persian literature. And um, he really put me through my paces when I sat down with him. And he sort of schooled me on what it was actually like to be a teacher in a Taliban area. And he was an older man. I mean, he had lived through the Civil War. He had lived through the the first iteration of the Taliban. And now he was living through the Taliban's return. And, you know, effectively said, "You've listen, lady, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> so if you want to hear what it's actually like, you know, we're all constantly kind of dancing. And that's that's what we do to survive. Afghans have been forced to cope with arms, armed groups since, since the late 70s. Afghans have been forced to cope with armed groups since the Soviet forces invaded. Well, how did the Soviet, how did that relationship shape what they're facing today? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because people often think in terms of uh, the Taliban in the 90s, if they even think back that far or they think about 2001, Afghanistan has been at war for at least 40 years, right? And that began in late 70s with, um, I won't go through all of the history, but with what effectively culminated in a Russian occupation and sowed the seeds for not only the Taliban, but Al-Qaeda and a lot of the Islamist terror groups we see today. 
But what effectively happened with um, the Russian occupation and the Mujahideen, the, the Afghan resistance to that occupation, is that you really begin to see guerrilla warfare take hold in Afghanistan. You see Pakistan, you see the U.S., you see Russia, you see all these powers meddling within Afghanistan. And that's been happening for a very, very long time, hundreds of years, right? But it takes on sort of new geopolitical forms in the 80s that set up the rise of the Taliban and set up what we're dealing with now. And it also sort of what it does to Afghans living now. I mean, if you're you're 40 years old, you've never known peace. You've never known your country to have a stable government, to be united, not to be at war with itself, not to be occupied by foreign forces or have them indeed arming various forces in your country. And I think it shapes the mentality of a lot of people. How could it not? You know, you don't have a sense of stability or what your government should be like or you know, effectively knowing, knowing a night of peace in your own, in your own country. And of course, vast majority of Afghans have fled the country at some point. Uh, Surveys have said up to 80% of Afghans have been displaced at one point in their lives. So it profoundly, profoundly shapes your sense of home, your sense of security, your sense of, of what you're willing to tolerate and how you navigate life. Afghan civilians are obviously not one homogenous group. And you quote an anthropologist who says, that Afghanistan is a cultural as well as physical a melt, melting pot. What role does ethnicity and tribe play in the relationship with insurgents? That is also a very good question, a very complicated one, and one which I'm probably not even, I've worked in Afghanistan over a decade, I'm probably not qualified to answer. I shouldn't sit here and talk about ethnicity and tribes. But I guess, you know, I'm from New York. I mean, it, that's a melting pot, right? That's what people... Afghanistan is similarly a melting pot as to, to the United States. At one end of the spectrum, you have the Taliban. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have the recently deposed government headed by Ashraf Ghani, a former World Bank economist. Uh, you know, so you have these two polar extremes, uh, polar opposites and all of the kinds of variety in between. And within that, you have a number of different ethnicities. No one ethnicity dominates, of course. The Pashtuns, who comprise the majority of the Taliban, comprise the majority of the country. Ashraf Ghani and Karzai were, were Pashtuns, but you have Tajiks, Uzbek, Hazaras. You have religious differences. I mean, 99% of Afghans are Muslims, but you have a small population of Shia Muslims. So you have all of this diversity. And I think that's that's part of why we've seen these cycles of conflict over the past few decades is that every time a new cycle of conflict ended or we thought it ended, there was a victor's peace that excluded a huge chunk of the population. So in 2001, we saw the Taliban and the sort of rural constituencies that they represent excluded and punished and hunted down. When the Taliban takes power around 96 they punish and hunt down other constituencies. It's a cycle that you can kind of trace back. And, you know, these victors' pieces don't actually work in Afghanistan. You need an inclusive settlement. And that's not some sort of flowery liberal peace language. That's a fact of life because it's too diverse. It's too diverse and it's too varied. And eventually, you know, Afghans will have to find a way to live with one another we certainly haven't helped by invading and meddling. And I mean, we, by all of its neighbors, the US, Russia, et cetera, 
but it's that diversity, which I think is the key to peace, but also why it's been so hard. You make the slightly staggering point. There's actually never been a census of Afghanistan. Does that present some challenges then in understanding the population? Yes and no. I think, you know, they've tried census taking exercises a number of times. They've never been completed because of conflict or because of politics. By now, it's really politicized to ask people about their ethnicity, for example. And if we find out that there are more Pashtuns, way more Pashtuns than we believed, or more Uzbeks or whatever, it tips the ethnic balance. It tips the sort of, um, the sort of elite politics where people use their ethnic constituencies to bargain with one another. I think, you know, Afghanistan has been one of, over the past 20 years in the Western world, it has been one of the most studied Context. A lot of that work is crap. I mean, I hate to say, but a lot of it is, is done by people who don't understand, haven't invested the time. There was so much attention by Western countries to quote unquote understand Afghanistan that a lot of really shoddy work passed for expertise. And now you see, you know, the past few weeks has been maddening for anyone, I'm sure for Afghans, because you see all of these quote unquote experts who haven't really talked about Afghanistan, haven't focused on it, haven't been there in a decade, now proclaiming, again, knowledge about the country, but it's deeply, deeply flawed. So I would say, yeah, we don't know enough about Afghanistan, but it isn't for lack of paying attention. It's for lack of listening and lack of really like investing in what this place is about and, and trying to do the deep understanding of it rather than, you know, surfacy kind of Western experts proclaim knowledge on CNN or whatever. <laughs> is it fair to say, though, that even those who were over there had rather completely lost touch with what was happening outside their sort of highly protected compounds? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, you had a lot of embassies in Kabul that were deeply, deeply fortified and and people couldn't leave. You know, a lot of internationals who worked for the UN, some NGOs, uh, certainly embassy staff could not effectively leave their compounds. If you worked for the British embassy in recent years, you'd be lucky to get out of Kabul at all during your two years there, whatever it would have been. And so how are you actually supposed to understand the country if you don't integrate into the society if you don't just make friends with Afghans you know be able to go out to dinner with them be able to do things you wouldn't have been able to do even relatively normal things that would have introduced you to this place and to the people and anything and I think that combined with this real pressure to create a success or sustain a narrative of success in Afghanistan blinded a lot of people to what was actually going on I think there was a real reluctance to even see the Taliban as anything other than beyond the pale, illegitimate, Pakistani proxies, whatever. Uh, and the idea that they would somehow come back, you know, they would somehow recapture the country as they've now done, was unthinkable, morally, ethically, politically, just unthinkable. And that kind of arrogance and lack of, lack of curiosity about the real dynamics on the ground, I think, is, is partially responsible for where we are now. Understandably, a lot of what's written about the Taliban focuses on the violence. In the book, you say for violence to be strategic, it must be selective. So this is a horrible question. But how do insurgencies identify who should be the targets of their violence? Well, typically they do so very badly with a wide margin of error, but they don't care, right? They're trying to make a point. Insurgencies and the Taliban is no exception, use fear and coercion. They rely on it heavily, especially 
as they're getting organized in, in their sort of early institution building phase or whatever we want to call it, um, before they kind of hone those skills. I think when insurgencies become powerful, when they become, you know, when they control territory, as we saw the Taliban do, they don't need to use brute violence as much. They build systems to discipline populations that allow them not to execute people or threaten people in the same ways because people already know what the consequences are and they fall into line. And we've seen that progression with the Taliban and, and certainly with other insurgencies with al-Shabaab, the Islamic State, violence uh, and coercion become institutionalized, much more state-like, really. And so even while the Taliban was in contested areas you know, there were really high levels of attacks, IEDs, brutal, brutal attacks on civilians in areas where they already controlled the population, where they already had a significant foothold. You didn't see as much of that. And that's because they had already sort of done all of that and they didn't need to anymore. So I think it's a terrible way to talk about violence, but it is how insurgencies and indeed states as, as they're being formed use violence. Can we Draw anything more broadly about the relationship between civilians and insurgents across the globe from Afghanistan. Are there lessons that we can learn that, that apply elsewhere? I'm tempted to say yes and no and give you a really muddled answer. But uh, with that caveat aside, <laughs> I think, yeah, of course we can. I think there are a couple of simple observations that, you know, it's much more complicated, that civilians play a really powerful role in shaping what insurgencies do. It's not at all straightforward. It's not black and white. It's not a question of saying that civilians can fight back or resist insurgencies. Actually, that's probably a bridge too far, but they find ways to survive. And often those ways are surprising and strange and brave, and sometimes stupid, and sometimes counterintuitive, but they find ways to navigate conflict. And if we paid attention more to that, I think we could understand more about how to help them, but also more about how to resolve conflicts, about why conflicts erupt, why insurgencies are able to gain traction. But that said, Afghanistan is Afghanistan. And I would never want to say that what goes in Afghanistan goes in Syria or Yemen or entirely different context. I think we do too much of that. We do too much of comparing one place to another and thinking, for example, what worked in Iraq would work in Afghanistan. That was one of the tragic mistakes of the post-2001 period. If anything, I think if you want to understand a given conflict, a given society, you need to, you need to invest deeply in understanding those specific dynamics. There are general lessons, but the, one of those lessons is to, to be specific and be intentional and to really invest in understanding what's actually going on in a given place at a given time. Understandably, there's a lot of concern now for what happens to women and girls in the country. How worried should we be? And is there anything the international community can do to help on that score? Yeah, I mean, obviously, after 2001, there was this narrative of girls going back to school, of women working, of great gains for women. And to some extent, there were for some women. For other women, life didn't change at all. So certainly in places like Helmand, there was very little change in the lives of the women I met from the Taliban era. Just There just wasn't. And that has to do with cultural norms specific to that place. It has to do with a lot of things. So again, Afghanistan is this incredibly diverse place. 
and women's experiences are extremely diverse. Uh, you have women serving in government at the highest levels on the, the peace negotiating team. And then you have women who are, you know, sitting in these villages in places like Helmand who have never been to a school, uh, have a very different attitude towards life and don't necessarily always want that to change. I think there are complicated views that women have, and we don't hear about enough of that complexity, but certainly I think what we can do now is really advocate with the Taliban. I mean, they're in charge and they've said, you know, they've said that they will respect women's rights within certain parameters. I don't believe that for a second. I mean, I think that that is a very public relations savvy overture to the international community. Yet they have tried to demonstrate that they're willing to, you know, be more moderate, be more allowing of women, you know, even at the university level, they tried to reassure people by, by announcing, okay, you know, girls can go to university. They just have to be educated separately from men from here on out. And I genuinely think the Taliban thought, oh, that'll be fine. No one will react badly to that. We're letting girls go to school. What's the problem? We're just protecting their modesty. The problem is there, there are sort of one, one female professor for every eight male professors and the facilities aren't separate, isn't equal. So, but even that provides an opening to say to the Taliban, okay, okay, that's the rules. Let's talk about the consequences of those rules. Let's talk about what we need in place to ensure that women can actually get an equal education, that they actually do have equal access because you definitely want female teachers and you definitely want female doctors. So how are we going to make that happen? And I guess to some people that might sound like pandering to the Taliban, but they now run the country. There's absolutely no choice but to engage with them on these issues, as well as to throw money at the problem. The international community, the one thing it has left is money. And it can say, look, we can fund all of these girls' schools. Look, we can fund all of these female radio stations or whatever it could be to throw money disproportionately towards the protection and preservation of women's rights would be at least one step in the right direction. Right now, the international community has cut off all aid to Afghanistan. So they've gone basically, I mean, they've shut the, the girls' schools before the Taliban has had a chance to, which I think is the, the real tragedy is that you see a lot of grandstanding rather than the sort of pragmatic things that might actually work to help women. My final question, what can the international community now do more broadly? So not just with women, but for all civilians in the country? It's been really interesting to watch the the fiasco at the airport and all these refugees trying to flee. I mean, it's been heartbreaking, right? And so many people I know and so many friends. But then there's 39 million other people in the country who will not have any chance to leave. I mean, if they do, they'll try and smuggle themselves to Europe or, or they'll send a son to go work in Iran for, you know, a terrible wage, which wouldn't even do much for them. You know, there are desperate options left. I have a sense that, you know, Western countries are going to try and sort of grandstand and demonize the Taliban, which you know, is probably totally warranted. The problem with that, though, is it won't be the Taliban who suffers most. It'll be civilians. If you cut off all the aid, the health system collapses. If the West doesn't restart paying, paying for health clinics and paying for health workers' salaries within the next 
two weeks, 95% of the clinics and hospitals in the country will close. That will be the cost that Afghans pay. And so there's a moral and ethical imperative to ensure that any foreign policy towards Afghanistan is guided by an ethic of do no harm, do no more harm, we should say. The West built this system in Afghanistan, which is sort of a, a sandcastle. And, you know, it's crumbling. It's rapidly crumbling. And so now what do you do? You try and stem the worst of the bleeding. There's been a drought this year in Afghanistan. Um, the markets have, have sort of ground to a halt because all of the banks have shut because this, this new government, this new Taliban government is not recognized. There are all these things that have, have happened after the Taliban seized power, which are far worse than even what the Taliban could, could imagine doing to the population in a way. So the West faces this kind of strange dilemma. Do you work with the Taliban regime? Do you try to find ways of working with them in order to help civilians, in order to, hoping against hope, to moderate the, the worst of their policies? Or do you turn your back entirely? And so it remains to be seen what, what choice uh, the US and others will make. I'd like to thank Ashley for a great discussion. The book is Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. And I'm Rosamond Irwin, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.